From Wacko Chaka Studio, I'm Ashwin Chaco, and this is The Fruitful Life, a show about the business of creativity and the stories behind the creators that have made their dreams a reality. Hey folks, welcome to The Fruitful Life, the fabulous Sarah Boris. Hi, Sarah. Hello, how are you? Good. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So uh, for the folks who might not know you, please introduce yourself. Tell us who you are and what you do. Um, that's a good point. Uh, so I'm an artist and graphic designer. Um, I've been practicing um, art ever since I'm little. <laughs> I know that sounds really cliche, but that's that's the truth. Um, I've always been painting and drawing a lot. And when I had to make uh, study decisions, um, I sort of by accident went into type design. And after graduating from a degree in Paris, specialized in type design, I went to study uh, in London, in a place called London College of Communication. I did a master's degree there. And for the first 10 years of my journey, I did actually focus on design. And so this is a long introduction. <laughs> um, but uh, and and so it's been recently actually that I've decided to split my time between uh, design commissions and making my own artworks, and it's been a bit of a juggling act. But I'm really loving the journey it's taking me on. Wow, it's it's great to hear so much about you, and I'd love to dive in a little deeper. But before I do, I have a little icebreaker question. So I ask this to all my guests. <laughs> um, oh. If you could be a fruit, what fruit would it be and why? Oh, my God. This is very difficult. Um, <laughs> I, I actually have a fruit project going on and I'm just like a big fruit lover. So I kind of feel it's almost like choosing children. Which child would you choose? It's like, oh, my God, between raspberries, strawberries. I think I'd be a raspberry because it's also my favorite uh, ice cream flavor. Okay, brilliant. Raspberry it is. Um, <laughs> well, speaking of your favorite flavors and um, what got you to transition from design more to the art side? Like what was there a catalyst moment that was like, OK, I've had enough of working for people. I'm going to switch out. Or what, what, what was the driving factor for you? Um, actually, I think there were a series of mounting factors, but um I so I was always as a designer still very close to the arts because I worked first in a place called the Barbican Center. Um, and for those who haven't been, it's a big arts organization in the center of London. It has a film, it has a lot of uh, wonderful exhibitions, it has live music and art. And so I worked within that space uh, producing other visual communications. And then I moved on to the Institute of Contemporary Arts, which is a bit smaller, but which still represents a lot of different art forms from music to film to a lot of contemporary art. And I think that part of it was seeing the artists there um, and seeing their work. And it just made me think, I want to go back making my artworks. And I think I've always been quite hands-on. I love the, the process of making and producing. Um, and I think this being an artist is a bit like being your own producer to some extent. Well, at least when you're at the beginning, <laughs> when you become a massive artist, you have loads of producers helping you. 
Um, but I think, so I was attracted to that. And, and my last full-time job was actually at Fiden, which is a book publisher, which who publishes, well, which publishes children's books, um, artist books, architecture books, monographies um, by really well-known uh, architects and artists. And again, seeing all these things really sort of increased my appetite to go back and make things. And I think one of the things when we're at university is that we have access to screen printing. And uh, even if we're in a design course, we have access to all these things which are quite hands-on or book binding or... And then when we go into a job for a company, we lose a lot of that access. Mm-hmm. And and so part of that was kind of thinking about all that made me want to go back into printmaking. Um, and so when I was at Fiden, I started looking at printmaking residencies. Um, and I, I think it was important for me to see how I felt within those spaces as well and see how I would feel within... Uh, an environment filled with artists. <laughs> um, and and so I applied for a first residency and used up my holiday <laughs> to do the residency. And I really, I really loved it. There were about 40 artists in the space. And interestingly, I was identified straight away as an artist within that space because no one really looks at what your background is. If you're there, it's because you're an artist and you have that drive. Mm-hmm. And I found that really interesting as well. It made me feel confident to pursue that path. Um, I think a lot of people sort of aren't used to people doing lots of different things. So they sort of, I think for a lot of people, it's okay to be an artist and a barista or an artist and I don't know, whatever combo you can think of. But being an artist and a designer sometimes is sometimes a bit of a clash where people are like, no, you're a designer. No, you're an artist. Yeah. No, you can't. No. And and so I'm really discovering that. And it's for me at the moment, it's a journey about having the confidence to keep leading both and doing both. And they're really complementary in my practice. So, but yeah, that was the first. And that was seven years ago. So then I took a leap of faith and left my full-time job. Um, and ever since I've been, you know, working on on both and just trying also to dedicate more time. I think it's really, there's an exercise in making time Mm. and taking the risk. Um, And it's definitely taking a risk because I'm, sometimes I say (laughs) I'm an old designer. (laughs) Well, not too old. Uh, I'm an old designer and I'm a young artist. Mm. And so there's a lot of novelty in me navigating my way through this and um, I obviously met a lot of curators during my time working in all these organizations. And it's also finding the right way to introduce my practice to them. And, and you know, I think first and foremost, it's putting the practice out there and starting to get feedback and see how people respond to it. It's, you know. Yeah. I, I mean, you, you, you made some interesting points there. One is about having a drive. The second was about putting your practice out there and uh, doing it in the right way. So what would you suggest for a young artist who's who's trying to make it out there in the world? Maybe they're planning on quitting their job from design. How do they approach curators? How do they 
go about putting their practice out there? Or like, there's probably not one way, but what was your way of doing that? Oh my God, I'm still finding my way. So I would be worried to give any advice, but I think what I've experienced is that if you don't show the work, it doesn't exist. Yeah. And, and I think it's okay to be on a journey and it's okay for things not to work out straight away. Mm. Um, and it takes a lot of time for people to respond to our practices. So I think it's just, you know, be, you know, finding, you know, the desire to keep producing and showing and keep making. And I think for me, it's that thing. It's like, we have to stop caring about what people are going to say. I think it's really about making the work we love to make. Mm. And I, I would say that it's definitely a bit of a gamble. You never know what will happen. But I think we have so many platforms today, which we didn't have a couple of years ago. You know, I started out with no social media. There, there wasn't really social media then. It makes me sound very old. <laughs> I'm like 200 years old. Um, but but I, And I think also it's important to remember that we were still, you know, managing then without mm. all that and and so i think looking back at that time and thinking of the time i i am in now where i mean i am sort of starting again i think it's really important to remember how we were doing it then without all these platforms and not to be too reliant just on those platforms i think it's almost like sometimes people there's a bit of a relationship like the lottery like i'm gonna get discovered on a platform and then everything will be fine. And mm. I think you have to keep putting the work first uh, rather than the perception of the work or the visibility. But we have to keep sharing the work. And I think thinking of ways to share the work outside of a digital arena is always important and inviting people to see your work. So whether it's a home exhibition or whether it's an exhibition at the local food shop, <laughs> we're talking about fruits, Actually, that's something I really want to do. I'd love to do an exhibition in a fruit shop. Because um, <laughs> uh, I've been doing this whole series of screen prints on uh, fruit labels. Um, but, you know, and I think also sometimes reaching out outside of our fields. fields. Mm. So exactly this, it's like not waiting for a perfect white space cube-like gallery to welcome us, but more like going into you know, like the local coffee shop or the local food shop and sort of starting new things and also looking at where there are possibilities rather than where there's everything saturated. Yeah. And and I think we're in and I think that's what I found with curators is even though they want to be helpful, they're they're saturated with requests. And so I think there's a lot of also sort of being patient and waiting for the right time to approach them and having a sufficient body of work to put forward. Um, and, and I would say it's always step by step. Mm. And I think a lot of what I've been doing at the moment also is making people aware of my practice and the changes in my practice and, and just being very honest that that's what I'm doing and seeing how people respond to that. <laughs> Yeah. So from what I'm hearing, it's it's don't just rely on social media, get yourself out there, meet people, network, because 
those relationships are going to get you more out of it. And then also you need to start by creating the opportunities for yourself. And then this will attract potential curators or other people, yeah. or at least they'll get the word out there that you're visible in spaces. <laughs> Is that right? Mine too. <laughs> yeah. um, and so... With your practice, so what 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 do you say is the driving factor? What keeps you going when things get tough or you're not getting commissions? How do you keep going? Because I think that's one of the big fears that a lot of artists have is the, you know, like not being able to handle your finance and cover your rent. And yet at the same time, this need and desire to create the art. Yeah. I mean that's a good question again. It's uh, it's I think it's what we were saying a bit earlier. Is um, I think when you have several practices or mm. several uh, revenue streams, I think it's important not to have everything in the same area, especially when you're starting out. Like for example, you know I am on in some ways. Um, I think it's really important. So for example, recently I realized that. I had lots of little different pockets of revenue coming from uh, teaching, for example, or uh, lecturing. So it's like one-off talks. Um, and obviously, they're all very small um, revenues, but when you add them all up together, they help sustain the practice when it gets quieter. Uh, obviously, they also take time. So it's finding the right balance between not taking too much of those and still making work. Mm. Um, so again it's always finding what's right for you in certain times and there are times also when you it's not even just the commissions that go quiet it's you that actually needs a bit of a break from from making artworks because your arm hurts <laughs> i've been doing a lot of coloring in at the moment so i was like oh my god i need to rest for at least a week my arm because this is like i was like doing a technique where I'm pressing really hard on the sheet and it's just like, it's actually quite physical. And yeah. then I was thinking it's okay to have a week where I'm being, I'm going to be lecturing more or I'm going to be doing more computer-based work. Um, and, and I found also that having a lot of different pockets of work um, not only helped me in, the, in like tougher times, but also inspired me because I guess sometimes as artists, we're quite alone mm. uh, even though we work with people and for people a lot but we're quite alone in our space and so for me you know maintaining a contact and keeping on seeing people uh, feels really important and it nourishes my practice but I also another thing is I also started making a smaller artworks like more sort of printmaking and even little <laughs> little postcards um, and and books um, like you're doing, um, well, probably not as such a large scale as you, but but what I thought was interesting with that as well is again those things lead you onto new things and they're small uh, revenue streams. Um, you know, like so I I also like went to knock at a couple of like print galleries in in London and asked them if they would stock my work and they were. Uh, some of them were really responsive to that um, and others aren't. And again, I think when someone isn't, it's probably also because they're 
they have a lot of other stuff or you're just not the right fit for the gallery or their their roster is full. There's always a lot of reasons. So I think it's really important not to ever take it personally, yeah. which I think is sometimes hard because we're so, I think we're so passionate and emotionally into what we make. Um, but yeah, so I would say that is mainly the thing to have lots of different little things that can help you in tougher times. Uh, mm. like the teaching and and in my case I also still take on uh, design commissions so for example at the moment I'm, I'm designing a book for an artist um, so that's also something that I love doing is like working with other and for other artists and it definitely feeds into my practice and I actually found it's mainly artists who are the most welcoming of my own art practice they totally get it that you know we can have different journeys and it's not just like straight away or <laughs> yeah i think that's a perception that uh, a lot of people feel like oh you're not an artist uh outside of the art community they feel like you're not an artist unless you're doing it like all the time 100 of the time but i mean if you look throughout history unless you had a patron you were probably yeah. working multiple jobs and still doing your art career on the side. And I think that's okay. And then eventually you'll come to a place where you find that sweet spot where you have multiple avenues that can, you know, fill your coffers so that you can keep working on your art practice. But I'm I'm curious because you are multicultural uh, you know, French and living in London. Um, how does that affect your artwork? Is there uh, some nuances that come into your artwork? Does language play a role? Uh, tell me a little bit more about that. Yes, I mean, definitely. I think um, uh, I'm just, uh, so I have um, a dual nationality because um, I was born in the UK. Um, but obviously you can hear from my accents <laughs> that my mother tongue is French. <laughs> um, I never, I never, uh, I'm never going to get rid of the accent, I think. Um, but I think I definitely speak in both languages now. Um, it's been, it's been really interesting for me as well, because I work mainly in English uh, and I write mainly in English and I read mainly in English, which wasn't always the case, but I think it's, uh, it's been more location based, um, and and I think, you know, I, I've been navigating as well a lot, luckily, with the train between the two, um, between Paris and London, and I, um, I even sometimes mix words, um, and and I think it was interesting, well, interesting and also very sad after Brexit, um, because. It made me think a lot, a lot about all these things and how I've had also like someone say to me on the bus in London, uh, say, go back to your country if you don't speak the language. Um, while I was speaking French on the phone and I was a bit like, well, this is my country as well. You know, it's just yeah, like, yeah. And it made me question a lot, obviously, as well, the notion of language, identity. Um, and it made me think how I could actually also celebrate um, what we have in common in language mm. and what we have that is different and how that can also become playful and become a, an extended celebration of our differences and our commonalities. 
And so this is actually the subject of a project I'm working on at the moment, which should be released as a book um, and, and as a series of artworks. But, it, but I found it interesting because for me, I was like, it's sort of, you know, this, this sort of division that it created, um, mm. you know, and also sort of also a loss. It's a grieving process for a lot of people, I think, yeah. this idea of division. Um, and sort of a regression, I would say, for a country to close its borders and make people feel unwelcome and have to apply to stay and kick other people out. And um, and what I found from, you know, growing up with two languages and meeting people from all around the world is that it just makes it so much richer and so much more exciting um and and so i think that informs my work in many different ways it could be through words it could be through um i don't know it's mainly words at the moment but it does it does really inform things and i think it's maybe even my practice is like that it's a bit, a bit dual as well and and so i think it's just really like and and i think even in universities is talking about those things and those journeys and actually making people feel less scared of differences mm. and more embracing them, I guess. I think I think people I think yeah, we need to talk about it definitely more. Um and I talk a lot about voting as well <laughs> <laughs> when I go into universities because I think again there's you know, we're we're not re we don't really study these things. Mm. And actually, I think they're the, at the heart of what our practices become. I think even when we look at funding cuts at the moment in the arts, which are huge, they are extremely political. Um, yeah. So, so I think I think yeah, I think the the sort of upbringing and and just this idea of where is home. You know, I feel I always find that home is where. The, you know my heart is <laughs> and, and so it's not necessarily language based but it's it's a sort of environment where I feel we're allowed to thrive and allowed to express ourselves mm. which is really important and I have phases where I'm a bit vocal <laughs> with some topics and some phases where I go back into much more what I call care bear phase with artworks so for example <laughs> so for example with you know the love a typographic artwork I've been making or uh, just now I'm re releasing a project which is a, a project around rainbows um, and and so these are projects which are also very soothing for me uh, to make in some ways they could be seen as micro-political artworks as well yeah. because I think anything that injects positivity is the counteract to very dire political times in the world Sure. Um, but yeah, language is definitely a subject in my in my work and in my studies at the moment. And and you you do seem or a lot of your work does have political undertones. I'd love for you to uh, talk a little bit about that. How the power of art can actually potentially help shape like culture and. Um, you know, uh, enlighten people to different ideas that they might not be aware of or because 
right now with social media, you can be stuck in a very insular bubble where everybody's just saying the same thing. Whereas pre-internet, I mean, we had to go to the library or you had to go and read and and meet new people and uh, get new opinions. So I'd love for you to share a little bit about your um, thoughts around that. I think coming back to a physical practice or, um, you know, being more out there physically, like the library, the galleries, less on social media. This physical attitude at the moment is a political um, stance with sure. sort of the emerging AI um, and sort of, you know, uh, overflow of digital in every mm. space of our lives. Yeah. Um, and and I think in terms of, of the political artworks, um, I could cite two particular ones, um, which I've done, um, which have been interesting in terms of their destiny. Um, again, I think what's interesting is that when you make art, not sometimes if it's a public art commission, you're going to think of the space it goes in. But most of the time, when you make art, you're first and foremost making it. You wanna you wanna do it mainly. Um, yeah. But the first one came about um, pre-Brexit, actually. It's, um, I was teaching A-level uh, at, in, a, in a school in Clapham South in London. And that particular year, uh, the fees tripled in the UK to go to university. So I was actually teaching students that year, which actually saw their hope of going to university vanish. Um, and then they were in the process of defunding the NHS that very year. There were a lot of talks and a lot of information about that going outside um, in the world. And the third one was Brexit looming upon us. And I, 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 I realized that I had, you know, I was living in a country where um, I was thinking, well, my family's in another country. Uh, I'm here. A lot of my friends are talking about moving because they don't want to stay in the country, which is, you know, voting Brexit and sort of dismantling a healthcare system and and uh, reducing access to higher education. And I was thinking, what is the identity of the UK as I've known it, and what is it becoming? And that's when I made the fragile UK flag with fragile tape. Um, and what's interesting also is that this was probably one of my most DIY artworks, like literally sitting on the floor on a Sunday making this. And I posted it online afterwards. And um, then, you know, there were a couple of uh, marches and I made it as a bigger scale for March. And then someone else asked if they could make it bigger uh, for March. Um, and then people started photographing it and it started going around in different places. It was exhibited at the Design Museum um, and more recently in an exhibition called Change Everything in Shoreditch. Um, and, and even more recently, it was uh, produced as a screen print uh, by one of the galleries I shall work with in London. And so what I found interesting as well with this artwork is I never expected it to have a lifelong of maybe well now eight years, mm. um, and and I what well, I I found interesting as well with political artwork of that nature 
is that it resonates at different times with different people and people will associate it with different things they're um, experiencing in the countries. So, um, and, and so the ongoing process of the national identity is shifting constantly at the moment with a lot of the decisions that are being made by the government, a mm-hmm. lot of the a lot of the things that are happening. And so that artwork has a form of longevity in itself. And it's also enabled me in, in a very simple way to, to talk about my uh, feelings in terms of what is going on. And I guess the second artwork is slightly different in form. It's what I would call an artist book. It's called Global Warming Anyone. Um, and so contrary to the fragile flag, this was made on purpose um, as part of an exhibit um, called Man-Made Disaster, How Patriarchy is Ruining the Planet. A very, a very optimistic topic again. <laughs> um, and now you understand why I need all those Care Bear <laughs> artwork <laughs> money. Um, but basically, when I received the initial request for that exhibition, I was thinking like, oh, I, again, I, I'm very careful with not you know, going to like the man-made or the woman-made or I'm very careful about these gender conversations. And initially I I wondered if I should take part, but then they had also very interesting artists in the lineup, uh, like Gorilla Girls, um, who've done amazing artworks, which are tape modern. And and I kind of thought if they said yes, (laughs) I I could or should probably say yes. and and then I actually thought about the angle of how I would reply in relation to my thoughts on sort of, you know, putting a gender on who is creating disasters. And then I thought I could actually study a specific figure that has an impact on what we're talking about. And I thought I could find a muse. <laughs> and then this muse, it's a, a strange word. You're going to see why, because this muse became the 45th president of the U.S. <laughs> um, uh, and I decided to, um, I noticed that they had been tweeting a lot on uh, climate change. And I dig deeper and found a lot of tweets on the topic. And so um, I titled the book Global Warming Anyone with nine question marks, which is extracted from one of the tweets. And I then compiled all the tweets into one book, um, which is a really small uh, flip book with about 156 pages. Um, and then I got a, a, an incredible journalist called Tommy Walters, who used to be based in the UK, um, working at Pentagram, and who is now in the, the US working for PBS uh, NewsHour. And he wrote an incredible introduction contextualizing uh, the work. Um, and, and, you know, just giving it a lot of, um, you know, a lot of his also opinion on the, on the content. And, and so that was a, a really wonderful collaboration, which I think, um, again, I had no idea that it would go on to other things afterwards, but, um, I, I only printed five for the exhibition mm. and then, um, I got an order from a green MP in the European Parliament in Brussels for 20 copies. Right. And, and I thought, oh my God, I need to fulfill this order. It would be a shame. So then I thought I could do an expanded edition. 
with all the new tweets that have been that have gone out since I did the first one for the exhibition. Yeah. Um, and so I found a couple more and I expanded the edition um, and, and and printed 120 books, um, which is exactly the number of tweets as well that are contained within the book. And little did I know that he would then be banned from Twitter. Um, and so again, that, you know, that was a, a really interesting moment in social mm. media history mm. um, and in politics. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and little did I know that this book, book would become also an archive reference material. Um, and so since the book not only went to the European Parliament, uh, it also went to the, um, uh, it's, a, it's been acquired by the New York Book Arts Center uh, for the collection. And, um, you know, I don't have a, a distributor. I've just launched it in two art bookstores, um, one in Paris and one in London. I love doing book launches. I think it's a really fun moment to gather people. And, and yeah, and so, so I think these artworks, which... I, I really still show when I talk about the work um, and when I do lectures, trigger a lot of really interesting conversation with students. And I really believe that students are one of the strongest force of the future. Mm. And so I think it's really important that we talk with them about those things and about the decisions they can make. Um, and I find them really invested in those topics when we when we raise the subject. So yeah, that's that's my little take on political art. <laughs> I think it's so interesting because it starts off with your own reaction to something that's happening in your life, in your world, and you put it out there and that then turns into something larger that you would not have expected. It, it's it's like with the fragile piece, you weren't like, I'm going to make a great art piece that is going to go in museums. But it ended up in museums because of the validity of the emotion behind it, the your specific voice within that context. And I think that's where art becomes really powerful is it vocalizes your opinion um, and it allows other people to see it visually and then prompts a conversation and i think that's the the most important part is the the conversation that is created by art because especially right now i find it's very hard to have conversations anymore because you say one thing and you're you know like shadow banned or uh, i don't know like uh you're you're canceled but you can't have a conversation if you cancel the person. Then it's just a one-sided opinion. Uh, so I, I think art has that power of hopefully bringing back that idea of discourse and the ability to say, let's agree to disagree. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. I agree. That's a really strong point. And I think, I think I'm think i really interested in conversations and... Mm. and I mean, I guess we should mention maybe how we met because that was really cool. Yeah, like, we we met at Dublin Airport, um, and we were both waiting for the plane, and we were both heading to speak at Birmingham Design Festival. Yeah. and 
And again, it, it was just a really nice moment where we just spoke to each other. And I think those moments are so rare now. With, yeah. Like just sitting next to someone and chatting to them. And in some ways, that's why I like taking the bus so much is that I find people chat a lot more on the bus. And <laughs> <laughs> the two, and the two, everyone's just head down on their phone. Right. And, and sometimes rarely on a book. But um I find those conversations really important and they're really strong moments, I think, in lives and really, I think, can, you know, can change people and can, mm. and, and like I was saying also earlier, can inspire and we don't have to agree, but we, I think a conversation is a meeting of minds sure. and those minds are always different because we have different journeys, but it's just just the best thing I think about humanity. Yeah, I mean, that's the only way to learn as well, because yeah. in the end, what's left is the stories we tell um, yeah. and how those stories are perceived and how um, how we shape the generation behind us uh, comes down to the, our ability to articulate those stories and share them, uh, which then informs the next generation about what they might do or what they might choose not to do based on your <laughs> stories. <laughs> uh, tell me what's one piece of advice you would give the next generation? I always find that question really hard. Um, my mind always goes blank when I get asked. I'm just like, um, one piece of advice I, well, actually, there's one thing that I read the other day by Jerry Saltz, who's an American art critic, mm. and he talks about um, people telling us to stay in our own lanes and saying that we should never stay in our own lane and we can try multiple lanes and lots of different lanes. And I think this is exactly what we're also talking about, is like working in, you know, having different practices, being confident with all of them and not letting anyone try to make us, um, take us off that lane. Um, and and the reason why we do it is that we want to do it. It's not, you know, just to, for a label or for anything else. Is because we're passionate and we're, you know, we are artists at heart. Um, so I really love Love that quote by Jerry Saltz, and I think it's really uh, a driving one for me because I've had a lot of people saying, you're not this, you're that, you're this, you're that, and I'm like, uh, so who? <laughs> you know? Um, uh, and when you are when you graduate from art school and you're like, I don't know, 21 or I don't know, whatever age, um, and you graduate from fine art and you say you're an artist, that's, it's fine with everyone. And so why is it not later on? I think it's, it's a curiosity for me. And I think one of the things that I found is the best advice is to stop caring what other people think. Mm. Do the things you want to make and don't stop. Don't wait for the opportunities to come. Create the opportunity for yourself. Um, and you'll see what happens. Excellent advice. Yeah. 
Very true. Very true. And the question I like to end all my podcasts with is, what does the word fruitful mean to you? <laughs> Another hard question. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God, fruitful, what does it mean? Um, I should know because I'm working on this food project. Um, oh my God, I'm like, what does it mean for you? <laughs> no, I want to know what you... <laughs> I wanted to know what it means to you. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess one thing I would say is, I would say thinking back on my journey, I think it's been a fruitful journey. It's been it's been fruity delicious. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I I think I think that's the idea um, of you know something which is fulfilling and colorful and and enjoy enjoying and which actually you know I was thinking about fruit and health. And so I think a happy journey is a healthy journey. Um, and I think the more I do what I want to do, the happier I am. And the more I feel that I can inject um, happiness out there and, uh, uh, and sort of positivity. Mm. Um, and, and I think we're all in need, a lot of it. And, and I definitely also believe what comes around goes around. <laughs> um, so, so I think it's a virtuous circle. And so I'd say all this contributes to what is fruitful. Yeah, good answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. And hey, thank you all for listening to this episode of The Fruitful Life. I hope you walk away with some nuggets of wisdom. And if you did, please do me a favor and leave a rating and a comment to let me know what you think. Also, tell a friend who might like it. As always, be true, be you, stay fruitful. <laughs>